Hi, I'm Ghislaine Anthony and I'm Director of BSG Corporate Affairs at Legal London. From Ackroyd Lowry, I'm Oliver Lowry. And I'm John Ackroyd. And this is Urban Forecast, the show where we talk to the people defining the future of our cities. We discuss their background, what drives them, and the insights they've learned along the way. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in how we live, work or play in the cities of the future, and what that means for the built environment today. So Ghislaine, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I would love to know a bit about your journey from studying law, or before, you you pick whenever you want to start, into into the role that you're at now. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for inviting me here today. I, where did I start? I started off reading English literature in my land at Queen Mary University of London, then a law conversion course and graduated in the sort of most miserable time of the GFC 2009. Also realised at the same time, I didn't really know any happy junior lawyers and that everyone was quite happy once they rose to senior ranks, but there was a fair amount of misery up until then and it didn't really, wasn't really particularly appealing. And needed a job, so I applied for all sorts of things, and property would see always the thing that appealed to me. I quite like the kind of tangible nature of it all. And ended up as an intern at the British Property Federation a very long time ago now, and meant to stay for three months and stayed for 12 years. What do the British Property Federation do, for those who don't know? So the British Property Federation, or the BPF, was the commercial real estate body, so it it was the representative body for the commercial real estate sector. So we represented everybody from the likes of land sector, BL to see grow, and then all of the kind of peripheral people around the edge of that. And I was there for a long time and ended up as the director of strategy and external affairs there. And then decided to make the move in house. So was really keen to go somewhere where I could really get a proper flavor of what happens under the bonnet. One of the things about being a lobbying organization is you see where all the problems are, you see where all the bits that stick are and you deal with government and that's great but you never actually see how the process works from A to Z and one of the amazing things about Regal London is that gives me a real opportunity to do that we have everything under one roof and it's a founder-led business set up um, just over 25 years ago now and we have everything from our land and planning team all the way through to sales and marketing and then over half of our of my colleagues are on the construction arm as well so with that kind of in-house construction ability we really cover everything and it's amazing to be able to be part of that and so the bpf i think you mentioned it was mainly focused on on commercial on the commercial sector so recall predominantly residential led is it is that sort of doubling the kind of the learning curve of the job that you're seeing the other side behind the curtain and also in a slightly different sector yeah, it's, I suppose there's an overlap around the kind of institutional side. So at the BPF, we represented everyone in commercial real estate, by which we meant any real estate you could derive an income from. So that included built-to-rent. Yeah. So we had a huge raft of built-to-rent providers there. So I got to know that sector really quite well. Regal London is, as you say, traditionally built for sale, but very much one of the advantages of being an, an entrepreneurial founder-led business is we have the ability and the agility to turn our hand to whatever the market dictates or whatever we feel will be best. So whilst traditionally it's very much been for sale, actually if I look across the pipeline of what we've got ahead of us at the moment, it ranges from later living to PBSA to build to rent to then some sustainable office buildings as well and retail. It is amazing that developers are the most ingenious organisations, I think. You see it at the moment, everybody's suddenly going, oh, we're co-living specialists or we're PRS specialists. And basically it's because at the moment it's really hard if you're selling every flat and all your profits stuck in the last 
ten percent of the flats you've got to sell. Obviously, these sort of institutional exits suddenly become far more interesting. But obviously, they come with having to relearn or learn new skills. Is that part of why Regal were keen to bring you in to make sure that they understood selling to institutions? I hope so. Otherwise, I'm potentially in one of the a wrong place. I think that was partly that, and I think it was partly one of the things that that as we get bigger as an organisation, we need someone who can really look after the kind of reputational side of life, whether that be through our social media work, whether it be through the way we talk to government and politicians, whether the way we talk to local politicians, but then also ESG. And that all just about ties together in one bucket that I look after. And for me, I've always, corporate comm side is rather sadly probably where I'm most comfortable in. So if I, if my, my first love is around words and how we can tell those stories. But then increasingly social impact in particular. And I have a really strong belief that we are a misunderstood sector. We're a sector that has the opportunity and the ability to really change people's life chances. And not only do people not understand that when we talk to our kind of key stakeholders in the general public, but we're not particularly good as a sector at telling that story. So really trying to shift that around and make sure that we're positioning ourselves in the way, best way possible to tell that story properly. And I think it is a good story. I sat down with Simon, one of the founders at MIPIM, and, uh, and he told me the story from his, from starting from setting up the business to now. And I think with ESG, particularly, well, with our clients, I think we noticed that in the commercial sector, there's a big focus on the E because the E is quite easy. So if you're a pension fund manager, say, and, you're, and you've got this portfolio of offices, making sure that the architects and the contractors understand that the environmental impact of the building is going to be very important to the future tenants is quite easy because it's spreadsheet driven and that's an area that fund managers are quite comfortable with the s the social element i think is much harder for them other than trying to make sure that their contractors employ their it's definitely a harder thing and i thought simon spoke very passionately about the work that you guys are doing do you want do you want to explain a bit about what reason sure as you say the e is I think the E is really hard, but it's certainly <laughs> something that people are doing more of, and it's certainly something that the it's industry has. Demonstrate the outcome. It's easier to demonstrate the outcome. It's easy to have a sort of green flavour mm-hmm. to things. It's less easy to have a an impactful flavour when it comes to the S. I'll stop the analogy there. And so what we're doing, so we took the view a couple of years ago. So this was before I joined Regal, and then and the kind of the arrangement we made, and I stepped in and, and run it on a day-to-day basis. We partner with an organisation called Building Heroes and Building Heroes train people coming out of the forces, so service leavers in construction. And for us, this is a massive win-win situation. We're not only getting to open our doors at an early stage and provide people with a real look behind the hoarding on day one and explain who we are and potentially providing with employment opportunities, but because we have that in-house construction arm, we're also growing our own talent. And one of the changes over the last couple of years with the impact of Brexit was obviously that we lost a huge number of people from our sector. And rather than leaping up and down and banging on doors and complaining and moaning, we thought we'd actually do something about it. So we have two construction academies. We have one in Watford that's been running for about a year now, which has seen between 60 and 70, about 65 old people go through it. Everyone who's wanted a job, who's wanted employment within our sector out of at the end of that has walked away with a job. Lots of people do it to become self-employed. Lots of people do it because actually they really want to get used to being back in the civilian world. And then we've also just launched a new academy in Wembley. So we have a couple of sites in Brent, academy in Wembley, 
similar kind of numbers going through. And the thing that's a little bit different about our academies in comparison to some of the others that Building Heroes run is that we also open them up to local people. So we have a combination in both going through. And it's amazing. And we have sort of phenomenal numbers, but also just the personal stories that you hear and the way that people talk about them and the way that our learners come through and really have a, in many cases, quite a confidence crisis about what they can do. And I've left the service after 17 years. Am I able to get a job? Can I do this? And yes, you can. And it's, it's those soft skills that are just as important as actually being able to learn, learn on the tools and learn the trades. And there's all sorts of amazing opportunities coming up ahead of us where we're developing a couple of new qualifications, one at more kind of project manager level. Sorry, I could talk about this for a lot, I said. One at kind of project manager level, one around green skills. And just really try and meet the needs that we have in London as to where we have those employment sticking points. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's amazing. So if you could, when you leave here, we've got two of our, we've got our own academy as well. It's actually, it's come from a different bit of thinking, which is that we think that Architecture is not very diverse yeah. and actually property is not very diverse. And so we're really keen that it, we think that the cities of the future must be designed by one, people that live in cities mm -hmm. instead of people that are from the home counties, which architects tend to, tend to attract, and also have a diversity of thinking. And so we partnered with local schools in Hackney and Tower Hamlets and Newham to do, we have two pupils in every month for a week and we do outreach stuff in the school just to actually advertise the fact that architecture is a career that you can go into because it's not taught at school so you get like a lack of awareness of it and then it's sort of too late by the time you signed up to do geography or whatever you missed the boat so we're, we're out there peddling the, you know blowing the bandwagon for and all those people who come through how many of them stay within the set how many of them stay within the practice or stay within the sector so we've only done it for four months so far right. but our idea is that so we told them all that the best candidates will be taken back for paid work this mm -hmm. is unpaid week, weeks work but at the end of it there's a design competition so they all submit their designs there's a cash prize at the end of the year and then we will take we, so we've got everyone's contact details and the best ones when we've got like when we've got peaks and depending on whether it's their term time or not we'll be bringing them in to do paid work so they're aware because we're trying to incentivize them to the first time we the first week that we did it both of the girls were sick on the same day and spent a lot of time scrolling TikTok and we were like, we need to sort of, actually, because it's, what's the win for them of paying attention and coming in and mm. being really motivated because we just assume that everybody will turn up like that. But actually, we found they were because they didn't really understand what they were doing before. They were like, oh, we have to do it. So we were like, no, let's flip this around. Cash prize for the best design and potential paid work at London Living Wage. And suddenly everyone turns up every day and they work quite hard. So it's been really good, but we've learned a lot. It's not we design buildings, we don't run education courses for young it's, people. It's exactly the same. Like we've learned so much in the last year that I didn't even know what we didn't know. And yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, with exactly. every cohort of people, we learn a little bit more, we're a little yeah. bit more comfortable with it. And it really keeps us on our toes with exactly that yeah. kind of thing. And it's, it's absolutely what the industry should be doing more of. And it's, yeah. you ask most people what they think of developers or potentially even architects. And it usually stems from a slightly grim experience they've had with it bad landlord or with a solicitor who's tried to do something they haven't liked when it comes to moving house or whatever it may be so actually changing those perceptions yeah. is completely crucial yeah and really hard and very hard but actually so i think the stuff that we're doing now is the stuff that i'm the most proud of because it was an idea that we had four years ago and it was surprisingly hard to get any traction we kept getting passed from pillar to post by people at the local authority where i couldn't make it land with the right person and now we've just got the most fantastic two people who care so much and run and they're across these three boroughs 
and they have an oversight of all the candidates in those sit form academies and know where we can go into to make the biggest impact on people like understanding of what is out there so yeah we've struck it really lucky now but it took a while to get it going amazing sounds great yeah so does yours <laughs> i think it would be really good to for the listeners to understand a bit about the original kind of founding partnership of simon and paul and their journey in the sort of early years and how that's changed absolutely so simon defriend and paul eden who some may know of founded the business as i said just over about 25 years ago now and his business was very much london-based and it was individual houses and carving up houses to make flats and largely in the kind of north london boroughs and it has grown really organically over that time and it's still very much founder-led simon and paul are absolutely on the floor every day involved in everything all the time and we've grown to an office of about 140 people. And during that time, I suppose there were a couple of kind of key big decisions that, did it, that had been made. And the first was to bring our construction arm in house. So we don't use the main contractors. We have that ability within ourselves. And that enables us not only to keep a really tight kind of eye on cost, but also a really tight eye on quality. And that's the main thing for us, quality and design and making sure that we really are able to deliver what we say we're delivering and in good time. We don't have the, some of the other you know, the delays that other people have because we can really get on site and get on with it. And I suppose the other kind of two unique things about Regal are that we have an in-house sales arm along with overseas offices for sales as well. So we, we have all of that in-house. We have that ability to, again, make those decisions quite quickly. And I sit next to the sales team in the office and I can, they're very busy, they're very loud. Hmm. But it's great to be able to have that kind of overview and oversight of everything that's going on. And then a bit more recently, there was a decision made within Regal London that we needed to diversify. And part of that was opportunity led about what was out there and what was going on in London. And some of that was because we have the ability and the agility to do that. So everything we get involved with at the moment has a beds component of it, but it might be a student bed, it might be a hotel bed, a lazy living bed, a built to rent bed or a for sale bed. And then we have all the other parts of a neighbourhood that go alongside that. So whether it's industrial space or commercial or, or retail, and we have a large, significant partnership with Barnet and a land agreement with them for the regeneration and revitalisation of North Finchley Town Centre, which for those who know it, it's very much not a destination. It's a mile long high street with, uh, with all the bits and pieces that go alongside that. And Simon and Paul, their background was in finance, is that right? No. So... Simon's background, Simon is very much the design-focused one, and Paul brings it all together on the commercial side. But together, they balance each other out and have the perfect so yin, yin and yang. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so those new models, how are they being funded in the same way, or are you having different... Are they institutional exits, so you're pre-funding them? It really depends. And each one of the, one of the beauty about Regal is that each project is different. So nearly everything we do is in is there's a partnership somewhere within there. So it might be a partnership with a funder, it might be a partnership with a local authority, it might be a partnership with a housing trust. So we just PC'd a large development in St John's Wood with Central and Cecil Housing Trust, and that was a later living block and a for sale block, and the two together kind of synergistic relationship between the two, and that's the kind of partnership that we really like where we can actually really work hand in hand to create something much better. 
And so it, it absolutely depends. And as again, to use the, overuse the word that the real beauty of Reboot is that we have the agility to be able to use different model on every single site. What's the vision going forward? We've, we know the story of the past 25 years. What's the next 25 years? What's the next 10 years look like for Regal? Gosh, the next 10 years for Regal. We've got a lot in the pipeline already. We've got about 8,500 units ahead of us. So we need to get on and deliver those and about a million square foot of commercial space. So to deliver that, to continue to build out, build out that pipeline, to hopefully continue to recruit the brightest and the best. And that's something which I'm particularly interested in, how we can do that and how we can make ourselves an organisation that people fight to want to come and join. It's a tough market out there in recruitment at the moment and really stand up along that and then talk more and more about what we're doing, whether it be our academies or whether it be our the variation of different schemes. We've got some fabulous sites on the books. We've got the big site next to the roundhouse. We've just bought Great North Leisure Park in Barnet. There's a real opportunity there. So at the moment, what's the plan for the next 10 years? Growing, growing on the successes that we've had and hopefully a bit more of the same. And I think it's, it's amazing when you, sit, when you think about it like that, eight and a half thousand units and how many million square metres of commercial, the impact that you're going to have on cities, on, on the sort of urban fabric. And I am interested in how much of the, the, the environmental part of the ESG regular pushing, because obviously you've got almost like a, you've got this opportunity. If you can make these buildings perform, you can imp- improve basically the performance of a small town worth absolutely absolutely you brilliantly led me in to talk about our scheme (laughs) of Watford is a kind of relatively mid-sized town market traditionally market town outside London oddly enough 15 minutes from Euston which most people don't necessarily know or appreciate and Watford's office stock is in the main a little bit tired and a little bit of an era And one of the things that we're doing at the moment is building a new 140,000 square feet office, square foot office building. And this will have all the various sustainable bells and whistles. So it's platinum, it's wired school platinum, it's active school platinum, it's BRIAM excellent, it's EU taxonomy compliant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this will, to use the words of Watford Borough Council, change the face of Watford. Mm. This means that we are really answering that that kind of post-COVID change in office habits where people don't necessarily want to go to an office if it's just a bit dull and there's a desk and a square of carpet. They want to go to an office that has all the toys and it's got the rooftop bar and the gym and the yoga studio and the bike parking and all that kind of thing. And that's what this allows us to do. So we're about a year away from PC. It's going really very well. And it's something that we're really proud of doing. And it's a, it's, yeah, it pushes us, but that's how it should be. And it's pushing us hopefully in the right direction. But I think we've chatted about this before we started recording, so I slightly know the answer. But uh, uh, we see that our commercial clients are much more aware of, obviously, Brian only applies to commercial, but they're much more aware of trying to get these ratings because there is a definite consumer demand among Mm -hmm. companies, particularly very big companies, actually, to be getting the best performing office space because it's, it's a sort of, I don't know, it might be written into their articles of association or whatever it is, that you, we're not finding exists in the residential market. Would you agree with that summary? Frustratingly, I would. I think it's, I think kind of consumer sector, the public, the residential buyer is a little bit less concerned, probably because their financial drivers aren't telling them that it's really important. You look into the detail of a green mortgage, for example, and actually it's not really much of an incentive. It's not enough of a push mm. to get people to ask about it. And we, what we see, and we talk to, obviously talk a lot to our peer group about this kind of thing, is that actually your average client, your average customer who's 
purchasing a new home doesn't really ask the question, isn't that interested? And now that's no excuse and it's absolutely not the thing that we base our decision on, but it does mean that you're absent, you're missing one of those real push factors that you have, whether it be in PBSA or offices, where you've got an occupier or a potential investor really pushing you to do that. Finding that more than with the built to rent sector or with the student sector, that the end investor will make their requirements known to you and you have to deliver to quite high spec then. Whether they make their requirements known to you or whether you're preparing for them to come in yes. to later okay, so you are really anticipating that they Absolutely. will want highest performing EPC races, et cetera, et cetera. That's interesting. So we had Dan Jesco, who's amazing from Settles Earth, came on this podcast and he said there would be such an interesting or easy lever that would incentivize homeowners, which is that you could use like stamp duty as a lever, basically. So you could say, if you buy a house and it's EPC rating A, there's nothing you can do, just pay stamp duty. But if you get, buy a C or a D, and you then convert it in the lifetime of the property, you could get your stamp duty back or something like that. And it, just, it would make so much sense. It would make so much sense. Because then people would be aware because yeah. they'd be thinking, what can I do whenever I buy a property now? Obviously, maybe I'm different because I'm an architect, but I'm always thinking, can I add value through a loft or a rear extension? Or if, this, if there was a simple thing where you're like, oh, I paid 25 grand in stamp duty and I'm going to insulate the walls and I get that 25 grand back, a lot of people do it. Absolutely. And that kind of comes back to central government, doesn't it? Whilst everybody talks the good talk, actually, it's never quite high enough up the up, high enough up the agenda yeah. to really make it into the kind of treasury thinking around real estate taxation. Well, both parties are talking good games now. We went to the Labour Party conference this year. So this year, last year, sorry. And all the announcement they've made there about retrofit first and a, an entirely green grid. They were the right noises. It, it, I think the Tories are going to have to counter on some of that so i think it could be the green election this one i hope so i hope so it certainly it certainly would play into the play into the views of many of the electorates it's just a question of whether they've got the skills within the parties to do we as i'm sure you would imagine a developer to say work with a party of whatever color as long as they see the challenges or the answers to the challenge in the same way as us but this is something that's really important you only have to look at the likes of barnett who flipped from being a Conservative administration to a Labour administration at the last round of local elections. And one of the first things a new Labour administration did was declare a climate emergency, along with all the other local authorities in London. But it's something that at a local level is really understood as being important. This is good because you've teed me up to, to plug the BCB, the Breakfast Club briefings. So that's our, as well as the podcast, you have been to our lunch at Mephim. I have. And you're coming to our event at UK Reef. I have, um, I have, I have. And so I think that, you know, that the point of that BCB is, uh, one, Planning is always political. There's no get to a certain scale and there's no real distinction between what's planning and what's politics. And the other thing is often I think developers and planners tend to be sat on the opposite side of the table. And the idea of the BCB is why should pre-apps be the only time that we're that developers and planners get to have dialogue? Because then you find out at those meetings that you're mostly talking about the things that you disagree on. But at the BCB events, the thing that I've loved about them is that you find that mostly planners and developers agree. You guys agree about 90% of things, and there's only 10% of things that you disagree about, and they're usually quite specific things to that side. And actually, it's really great. Like, mostly planners get into planning because they want to, amazing cities for the people that live there. Developers, mostly they're trying to do the same thing, and you mostly agree that it needs to be green and placemaking is important. So I think I have, that's my little plug for the BCB. Glad you're coming to the next one. Absolutely, I'll be there. To continue the dialogue with between planners and politicians and developers. I'm shocked, I think, that in the resilience of house prices, despite all of the efforts of Kwasi Kwarteng and co to destroy the property market, 
it's surprising that property still seems to be, or house prices seem to be quite resilient. Are you surprised about that? Are you finding that? Are you finding transactions are down as a... No, no, not at all. We've had a really healthy transactional year. As you say, there was, a, there was that sort of huge amount of coverage and noise around the fact that house prices were going to drop and that transaction levels were going to slow down and that we were all going to be facing apocalypse of the property world. And actually, I don't think that's been the case. And what one of the things that we've been thinking about, and one of the things that I think has really stood up, is that it's a flight to quality. And actually, if you're producing something and creating something where in the right place, with the right immunity, with the right kind of priced appropriately, actually, it's really held up well. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank and, you for having me. Uh, yeah, look forward to catching up with you again, Anita. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the show, then please subscribe and give us a review, ideally a five-star one. And if you want to know more, please go to AckroydLowry.com or follow us on Twitter at AckroydLowry and Instagram with the same. This podcast supports LandAid, the property industry charity that brings together the sector to deliver life-changing projects for young people who really need it. Visit www.landaid.org to find out how you can help end youth homelessness.